John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. <laughs> the cinephiles fans uh this is the outlaw john roca joined as always by my co-host steve morris hello how are you good man good and a little bit sad and we are also joined by our very special guest who was our guest when we originally recorded this episode for star trek 6 that is noted film historian co-host of enterprise incidents um one of the greats in the schmodown one of the legends of the schmodown but also <laughs> uh someone that both of us are proud to call a friend steve morris and that is the great Scott Mance. Scott, welcome back for this fun, with well, this special intro, I guess. Not fun, special intro for Star Trek Six. Well, thanks so much, gentlemen. You know, you guys are have been great friends for so long now. Uh, you know, working with both of you in various capacities. And, and you know, David Warner is, uh, is a legend, an absolute legend. Uh, and his association with Nicholas Meyer, who directed him in Star Trek Six goes back much, much further than that. The first time I saw David Warner in a film was Time After Time, directed right. by Nicholas Meyer. He plays Jack the Ripper. And uh, you know Malcolm McDowell as Sherlock Holmes is on his tail in, in modern times. It was a really fun movie. It came out in 79. And uh, I was like just at the right age for that. And then I just seen Warner in so many movies over the years, even, you know, Star Trek five, he was in a lot of people don't remember that, yes. but there he was, but also, I mean, just, you know, I just rewatched about two months ago, uh, one of my favorite movies, which I'm not ashamed to say this but <laughs> Titanic. Yeah. I love Titanic. I am a crazy Titanic fan. And, uh, you know, he was, he was really, really great sort of chewing scenery as the foil for Leonardo DiCaprio's Jack. But uh, he was Gorkon in Gorkon. Yep, in yes. Star Trek Six, and uh, his, uh, I guess, his parting words in Star Trek Six kind of take on a more of a resonance. Don't let it end this way, Captain. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and that's why we're doing this intro, Steve. It's because of the uh, the passing of David Warner, who we lost on the same day that we lost Paul Sorvino. So. Pretty sad day, and we seem to be losing a lot of the greats recently, and certainly David Warner, 
only 81 years old, which is uh, not, uh, you know, people live till 90 or 100 now. So it's really sad to see him go. But certainly he was part of, as Scott mentioned, a part of so many different types of um, of films and TV shows. What do you think when you think about David Warner, either in Star Trek six or as an actor? I, I think of his power, I guess, mm. is the, the, the biggest word. Is there such a dignity about him and a power and a, uh, you know, veritas about him, the guy, and, and particularly, it's, it's so funny thinking about the two big Star Trek roles. We, you know, yeah, there's Star Trek five, but, but in both cases of Star Trek six, and then in Star Trek, the next generation, he plays a powerful person. And one in Star Trek six is a powerful person for good. Yeah. And the other in next generation with, uh, is it, what's the, what's the title of the episode? It's a two part episode. Is Chain it? of command. Part Chain of command. Yeah. He there are four lights. <laughs> terrifying. And it's great too, in that to see, you know, Patrick Stewart, a great, classically trained actor from the English theater going with another great classically trained actor and going toe to toe with them. I mean, it's just really good. I I love Listen, I mean, uh, David Warner is sort of the go-to person for sort of playing like dastardly villains. Mm -hmm. Of course, he played the central control uh, in Tron, which uh, came out the same, you know, the same, uh, basically four weeks after Star Trek two, yeah. And then there's Time Bandits. I mean, he's just done so many great roles. He's beloved as an actor. He's beloved in the genre. And yeah, Steve, I'm glad you brought up the Star Trek The Next Generation because those scenes uh, between David Warner and Patrick Stewart, it's like there, there are certain actors where you just would just just pay to watch them read from a phone book at each other and and that the, those scenes, you know, where he, where where Warner is torturing Patrick Stewart are, are really uh, powerful and fantastic. Yeah, and he was never um, ashamed to do some of the more blue materials. You would say there's even you know there's mortal passions from the 1980s. I remember being in one of those closet like Skinamax type films. He has showed up at so so for all the great stuff. He also. Uh, didn't have an issue showing up in the weirder films like Privateer 2, The Darkening, which was a video game, <laughs> uh, you know, things like that. But then he'd also show up uh, in animation. He was in Freakazoid. He was in Spider-Man, the animated series. He did a number of roles here where he was he lent his voice to these kind of animated uh, shows. What's new Scooby-Doo? He was part of that as well. So he was able to run the gamut of so many different uh, types of genres and types of uh, pieces of media that, you know, he was able to uh, create fandoms in all these different areas because, as you said, Steve, because of the power of his voice, the power of his physical presence. You know, I think of Chancellor Gorkon as someone I would like to have known. You know, there are other Star Trek characters where you see them on screen, especially in the movies. You're like, oh, man, I'd love to sit down. I would have loved to have sat down with Chancellor Gorkon and interviewed him for an hour about Klingon relationships and how the Klingon, like, hear the other side. Chancellor Gorkon, talk to me about Klingons. Tell me about the misconception people have about Klingons. Clear up some, uh, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, hard hard beliefs about Klingons that people have from other planets. What's the truth? And I feel like the way he played Chancellor Gorkon, you could hear another point of view another, and kind of get it and understand it. And that's the thing he would bring to those roles that had a little more, um, how, a little more vulnerability or a little more connection to them, a little more goodness to them. But then when he's evil in Titanic, as Scott mentioned, he is so purely dastardly evil that it unsettles you. So he uses his size and his voice 
for quite a different approach there as well. So just an incredible British actor that, like almost all the great British actors, can run the gamut of status depending on the project and knock it out of the park. Uh, it's funny. I was just thinking as you were talking about because I agree with you about Chancellor Gorkon. I think he, mm. I think he is a truly heroic character. And and what I was thinking about, you know, just thinking about Star Trek Six, and I go, man, this is a movie that it's good thing that we're re-releasing, and it's a good thing that we're looking at because this is a movie that is about prejudice. It's about the Cold War. It's about yeah. healing divides, and it's about people who are unwilling to heal the divide between us. And it's like if you look at our world today, whether it's Ukraine or conflict in the United States, I mean, and we're what's and it's just like in Star Trek Six. In Star Trek Six, they're facing massive environmental disaster yeah right so are we we are facing massive environmental disasters we're facing pandemics and we're fighting amongst ourselves rather than solving these huge problems so i think we need someone like chancellor gorkin who says no we can reach across this aisle and create peace we can solve these problems yeah well well the other thing about about gorkin is that he's not in He's not in the film that much. I mean, yeah. you know, spoiler, he, you know, he gets killed off pretty soon. But Korkon is one of those characters. He's not in it a lot, but but his his presence there is substantial, so substantial that even after he's gone, you feel his presence going all the way to the very end yep. when his daughter says, you know, you've restored my father's, my father's faith. And, you know, Kirk says, you've restored my sons. Now- I remember when we were talking about Star Trek VI during our initial deep dive that I said I didn't like the way Captain Kirk was so so prejudiced in in uh in in the film. I mean, he yeah. was so so bitter about the death of David at the hands of uh you know in Star Trek 3 that by the time Star Trek 6 rolled around and he's 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 given this mission which he reluctantly accepts because you know he's under orders yeah. to uh to sort of get the peace going with the Klingons. And here's Gorkhan, who is, uh, he is a hero because he is a Klingon uh, authority figure who is representing change. Yeah. The passing of the guard, leaving behind the old ways, uh, saying that we have to be at peace with the Federation, which like, you know, was, it was Star Trek six was the, uh, passing the baton basically to the next generation, especially mm-hmm. at the end of the film. And Gorkhan had, he was respected. He had dignity. He was, he was an admirable figure, yeah. even more so than James T. Kirk. And, and I, you know, Steve and I have talked about this elsewhere. Sometimes we're talking about the cer- certain episodes from the, the original series where we go, where's the guy from balance of terror who said, leave any bigotry in your quarters. There's no room for it here on the bridge. Hmm. And then in Star Trek VI, Kirk is saying, let them die. So he's a very changed person. He Kirk is not the same person in the, the latter part of the feature films that he was in the original series. He's gotten hardened. He's gotten bitter. And, and the whole ordeal uh, that he went through in Star Trek VI snapped him out of that. Yeah. I liken Gorkon to the Robert E. Lee of that situation where, you know, people have this respect for him um, when they talk about him, when they remember him, when they uh, do the documentaries on him. And I feel like Gorkon would have that. And that is due to David Warner's fantastic performance. And Scott, you're so right earlier in this, in this tribute to him to bring up that last line. Cause there's, there's so much power in that moment. Yeah. That instead of being angry, instead of dialing into conspiracy theories, he says, 
don't let it end this way. Like you're, you've got just as much power as I do to change this situation. You must now get past your prejudices and right. carry out our mission and finish it, you know? And so it's so powerful. And that's why you cast an actor like this. You know, Steve, you talk about casting all the time, obviously, you know, being very attuned to it with Karen as your wife, but also understanding how important casting is to a role, especially when you just said, Steve, there's limited amount of time, or Scott, limited amount of time. There's a limited amount of time. So you've got to cast someone who's going to convey that immediately to the audience without this massive backstory. And David Warner does right off the bat. And that's one of the gifts he had as an actor for sure. Uh, yeah, Steve, go ahead. I, I just had guys a full epiphany <laughs> and it is a Star Trek epiphany. So, you know, this is very much connected to the conversations we've been having on enterprise incidents. But one of the things that we've talked about throughout the original series is that James T. Kirk is really a tragic figure. Mm -hmm. The amount of terrible things that he has to endure through the course of the original series between the death of Edith Keeler in City on the Edge of Forever, the death of his wife Miramani in The Paradise Syndrome, his brother dies, and he has to deal with all of these things. And throughout all of these things, what we see is Captain Kirk putting down those emotions and going, we have to fight on. And then this is what just occurred to me. It's like, okay, then he leaves the Enterprise, becomes an admiral. And he's really, really unhappy. He comes back to fights his way back to the Enterprise yeah, in yeah, Star does. Trek One, <laughs> uh, in kind of a jerk way. And then in 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 Wrath of Khan, where he's dealing with his old age, he's a sad guy. And what happens at the end of Wrath of Khan? His best friend dies. Yeah. And then in the next episode, both his son dies, and he has to murder his other true love, which is the Enterprise, the Enterprise. itself. Yeah. So by the time we get to Star Trek Six. I think he's kind of a broken guy. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I think we reached, he kept being able to deal with tragedy and soldier on, deal with tragedy and move on, deal with tragedy. And he kept compartmentalizing and compartmentalizing until by the time, and then I, we can even bring in Star Trek five into this because he says, I need my pain. So he's still holding on to the pain yeah. and not dealing with it. And that's how we get bigoted Kirk in Star Trek Six. Well, well at the same time, first of all, the Kirk as a tragic figure was definitely one of the big epiphanies that that you know when Steve brought that up uh, throughout Enterprise incidents, it just became more and more solidified as as we were going through through the original series. But the other thing about Kirk that we always loved was what that he was never afraid to admit when he was wrong. Yeah. And, you know, usually those, those epiphanies that he would have realizing he was wrong would take place over the course of one episode. For example, he's like going after the Horda and then he realizes, oh my gosh, it's a mother protecting its eggs. And, and we were wrong. And like in metamorphosis, we got to kill this energy force, the companion to get off the ship. Wait, no, it's a woman in love with the man. It's a female in love with the man. We were wrong. And then in, in Errand of Mercy, in Errand of Mercy, uh, you know, he's he wants Organia for the Federation instead of having the Klingons. And by the end, he's back on the bridge and he goes, we were wrong. And so, <laughs> but in this case, with Star Trek VI, you're talking about a an arc of his character, not just in an episode, not just in a single movie, but an arc in his character, all that pain, all that tragedy leading up to the, to the bitter and hardened Kirk of Star Trek six. And then he gets to the end of Star Trek six and he goes, your father 
called the future, the undiscovered country. People can be very frightened of change. And that was him talking to himself, saying, I was wrong. And that is one of the many things that we've always admired about Kirk. And in this case, that epiphany came from those final words said by, by Gorkhan. A tribute to the fantastic performance of David Warner. All right, well, that's our that's our tribute to David Warner as we reissue this episode of Star Trek VI, dare I say, starring the three of us, uh, talking, <laughs> <laughs> talking about and breaking down uh, Star Trek VI. And I'm sure we have quite a lot of positive things to say about David Warner throughout the episode. So from the Cinephiles and the great Scott Mance, please enjoy Star Trek VI. Don't believe them. Don't trust them. They're dying. Let them die. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host over there on the Outlaw Nation, voiceover guy, and massive Star Trek fan. So excited that we are going back into the world of Star Trek to talk about the sixth film in the original series, the best series of films, in my opinion. So very excited to be jumping back into this. And, of course, we can't possibly talk about Star Trek <laughs> without inviting back on one of our the greatest guests in the history of the cinephiles, one of the greatest fans in the history of Star Trek, and that, of course, is Mr. Scott Mann. Scott, welcome back to the cinephiles. Woo! Thank you, fellas, so very much. Johnny, Steve... I know every time, every time the three of us get together, every time you've had me on and wherever I've gone, I always say, and I mean this so sincerely and from the bottom of my heart, that the very best conversation I've ever had on film is with the both of you for the cinephiles. I still periodically get messages on social media you know, back when I was going out and about, you know, before this uh, <laughs> pandemic thing happened, uh, I have a great story about one night I was at the Arclight for a screening, a press screening, and I was I was walking out towards my car after the movie was over, and somebody was walking in. The guy said, "Wait a minute, I know you. You're Scott Mance." And I'm like, yeah. And I'm like trying to figure out where he knows me from. You know, could be anything. It could be from Mance versus Roca. It could be from, <laughs> you know, Screen Junkies or Collider or Schmodown, whatever it is. So he says, I loved hearing you on the Cinephiles talking about Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Mm -hmm. And this, you know, we had we did that conversation a couple of years ago. And this yeah. was this was last uh, you know, right before. Uh, I would say it was during the holidays in 2019. So it was before the pandemic hit. But uh, I still cherish each and every episode that we've done, whether it's Blade Runner, Close Encounters, of course, A Hard Day's Night, Star Trek, The Motion Picture. And now to have me back for Star Trek VI, which is a movie that, well, it has meant different things to me at different points in my life over the last 30 years. This movie guys as of december 6th this year this movie will be 30 years old 
30 years old. Isn't that crazy? Wow. Isn't that crazy? Insane. Now, now wait, Johnny, do you yeah. remember where you saw Star Trek <laughs> six for the first time? Oh yeah. Are you kidding? Opening day. I went uh, uh, by myself because I didn't have a lot of friends who were into Star Trek at the time. And I went by myself to go see this thing and savored it so much uh, there in Virginia. And I just was like, this is, this is so good because Star Trek five, I had to defend that stuff, and I, you know, and I, there are some good scenes, but there are people saying, oh, this one, I don't know, it's getting a little long in the tooth in terms of series, and then I went to see this one, I was like, oh, yes, this is back to what made Star Trek great, they they, they didn't let anybody go off on flights of fancy and have these large religious discussions, this was about an adventure, espionage, and it captured once again something topical that was happening in the world american russian relations the cold war the end of the cold war the wall coming down just like it tackled black and white social issues in the 60s it tackled so so this is it just encapsulated everything i loved about star trek one more time uh, with this original crew. So, yeah. One more time. <laughs> Please, not again. <laughs> okay, Steve. <laughs> Steve, how about you? <laughs> um, I first saw it uh, in Walnut Creek on opening night, of course. So probably three hours later than you saw it, John, because I'm on the West Coast. <laughs> right. And I took a girl who I had just started dating a few months before, and that is my wife, Karen. So we had started dating in June of 91, and this is now December. So it and and same as you, John, I found ways to pretend that I liked Star Trek five, <laughs> you know, and I will say there is one do. sequence in Star Trek five. I do like, yeah. um, but, but uh, this was just like such a, a relief and such a great way to end the series. What about you, Scott? Okay. So, so this is interesting. Mm-hmm. So Star Trek six is the first Star Trek movie that I actually got to see before it opened. Oh, wow. So in 1991, I had moved to New York. I was 22 years old. And I went there to work for the company Creation, Creation Conventions. They do all the Star Trek conventions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so this movie had a press screening in Manhattan about two weeks before it opened on December 6th. So everyone at Creation, I mean, there wasn't a big staff. There was only like eight of us, but we all got to go to the first, uh, you know, the press screening for Star Trek VI. And it was it was, uh, it was, was in New York. And, you know, first of all, to see a, a movie for the first time before it opened and to have that movie be a Star Trek movie was special unto itself. Sure. But fellas, after Star Trek V, I mean... I remember Star Trek V feeling so crushed and so disappointed and so defeated, but I knew in my heart that Star Trek VI was going to rebound. And you know why I knew that? Do you want to know why I knew that? Yes, we okay. want to know yes. why. <laughs> <laughs> yes. A thousand percent. Okay, so first of all, I knew there was no way that Paramount would let the original series crew go out with Star Trek V. I also felt very strongly about that because 1991 was the 25th anniversary of Star Trek. And you've got to mark the 25th anniversary of this crew with a movie that does that crew justice, which it definitely did. But also that summer, in the summer of 1991, I remember taking my then girlfriend, Linda, we went to the movies to see Thelma and Louise. 
So this was like, I think in May and before the film, they had a teaser trailer for Star Trek six. Now, I don't know if you you remember this teaser trailer, but it was a montage of scenes from the original series. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Do you remember that? Do you remember that? Now that that you say it, yes. Where this guy was doing a voiceover saying for the last 25 years, they have inspired us. For one quarter of a century, they have thrilled us with their adventures, amazed us with their discoveries, and inspired us with their courage. Uh, and, and showing like all these scenes from the original series. And then it says, and they have been our friends. And I remember I got the chills and I, I got very emotional. And my girlfriend thought I was crazy, but I just said, this movie is going to be great. And this was in May. And to finally have seen it in December. Now, when the movie actually opened on December 6th, I was in Sacramento I was I was working a convention that Creation had in Sacramento where the guests were Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner. They were on stage together mm-hmm. on opening day for Star Trek Six. So the energy, there must have been 4,000 people in the room. The energy was just absolutely incredible. And of course, the movie was great. Hmm. And as for, fellas, where it ranks in star trek movies especially the original series yeah. uh, i'll save that question for later in our uh, in our broadcast here yeah. because i am curious to know where you rank star trek 6 along the lines of like star trek 2 and star trek 4 and even star trek the motion picture yeah well look we're gonna do our normal breakdown strip it down to the bone and build it back up again analysis of star trek 6 and I think you're going to enjoy it, everybody who's listening to us. But before we go any further, uh, you two gentlemen have something you'd like to announce here at the top of the show. And we'll bring it back again at the end of the show. But let's uh, talk about it now. Uh, what is happening, uh, gentlemen? Well, about a year ago, we did Star Trek The Motion Picture. And it was one of the most fun conversations that I've ever had on the show. And it suddenly hit me that I want to talk more Star Trek. And so I, I I emailed, I reached out to Scott and said, would you be interested in doing a podcast about the original series? And it took a long time to convince him, but I finally did. Yeah, it did take a long time because I felt like, you know, people have been doing podcasts on the original series for quite some time now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I kind of felt like, well, what am I going to, do that's different like what what are we going to do that's different than, than anyone else and 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 it occurred to me after steve kept kind of bringing it back i mean he was very very persistent and uh i have to say i'm, I'm so glad steve that you were because ultimately now we're in the year that marks the 55th anniversary of star trek mm-hmm. also uh, I have to say, we are in the year that marks the 90th birthdays of William Shatner Ooh. and the late great Leonard Nimoy. Yeah. So, but but ultimately, I think Steve said it best when he just said, "Yeah, other people are doing it, but no one's going to do it like you because because you are so informed about yeah. Star Trek and you love Star Trek so very very much, and it's it's just 
enriched your life for your entire life and you are so passionate about Star Trek. And that's something that you do that few other people can really do, especially when it comes to Star Trek. And that's what sold me on it. So, you know, I've, I've guessed it on other podcasts, mm-hmm. a lot of them with you guys for the cinephiles, mm-hmm. but I've never hosted or co-hosted my own show, my own podcast. So what better way to start co-hosting my own podcast than to do a podcast on the original series. So our show is called, what is it called, Steve? It is Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. And yes, that is definitely a name that comes from a third season episode, Enterprise Incidents, but this is Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. So each and every episode of Enterprise Incidents, we will break down and then build back up, like John just said, for this podcast, we are going to do that with each and every episode of the original series, and we are going in production order, the mm. order that these episodes were filmed, not the order that these episodes actually aired. Mm. And we've already done, <laughs> I would say, seven episodes going in production order, and already I have certainly seen and thought about Star Trek in ways that I never thought about before. Mm-hmm. I've had different takes on certain things about certain episodes, especially the naked time, which rocked my world just thinking about thinking about it in a new way after all these years. But Steve, where can people find Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve? Well, it's going to be on all the regular podcast feeds. So on YouTube, on Spotify, on Apple, iTunes, of course, just do a search for Enterprise Incidents. It will pop right up. And I believe that by the time this episode launches, so will Enterprise Incidents. I believe. I'm not 100% sure because we're still working out a few logistics. But as Scott said, we've already recorded seven episodes. I've already edited four of them. And it's been... I, I it's exactly what Scott said. I've watched these episodes over and over and over again. I know them like the back of my hand. And yet watching them for the podcast, it's just like John, the experience you and I have had mm-hmm. so many times where watching it for the show, all these new things come up. I have all these discoveries. And of course, talking to S- Scott in the middle of an episode that I've we've both seen 50 times, who knows how many times it's like, yeah. oh, wait, I never thought about that. I never saw that before. And it's been just so exciting. And, it, and it's funny, too. It's like, does Enterprise Incidents share some DNA with the cinephiles? It absolutely does. Is it a completely different show? It absolutely <laughs> is. And that's because it's the difference between collaborating with John Roca and collaborating with Scott Mance. Mm. It's just different things come up, different things happen. It's shaped in a different way. And the other difference, of course, is instead of a new movie each time, we are going back to the same cast and crew in the same world every single time. And and, and going in production order has been awesome because you can see them figuring it out mm-hmm. as they go. Mm-hmm. Well, one other big announcement, of course, is, uh, you know, the first few episodes we've done, it's just been me and Steve, but Yes, we are going to have guests uh, from time to time on Enterprise Incidents, and I'm very excited to announce that our very first guest on Enterprise Incidents will be John Roca. Woo! 
<laughs> my honor, gentlemen. You guys know I'm a, I'm as massive as I'm a massive Star Trek fan, so I'm excited to uh, that you guys are launching this thing, and then I'm excited to be a part of it, to be one of the or to be the first guest coming on. So uh, I can't wait. I can't wait to to share some more of our Star Trek love, which we're about to do on the show as well. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, wishing you both the best, certainly, and everyone who's listening should go over and find it, subscribe to it, so you can listen to it. You guys have enjoyed Cinephiles so much. Uh, now go and see what uh, Steve can do with Scott here on the Star Trek Incidents. And you guys know how much of a massive fan uh, Scott Vance is and how quickly he has all the historical dates, all the historical knowledge, who he went to see the movies with, who he went to <laughs> see the shows, who he's enjoyed the shows with. So you'll get all of that for sure. So uh, definitely go and subscribe and find that. Uh, and I'm looking forward to being, I'm looking forward to being on it and, uh, and having a great time with you guys again. Very, very um, excited. Well, speaking of diving in, <laughs> here we go with uh, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Yeah. So the the reason we we decided to do this, in addition to wanting to launch Enterprise Incidents, is that is it's that I can't quite say it's the sad reason, but we lost the great Christopher Plummer yes. just one month ago. And, you know, he was 90 years old, so I, I feel like he's led quite a full life. But I wanted to give just a quick biography. And his biography, frankly, has a lot to do with Star Trek VI. He's born mm -hmm. in 1929 in Toronto. He, I believe, is the great-grandson of a Canadian prime minister. I thought mm -hmm. that was interesting. Of course, he grew up speaking both English and French. And he was inspired to become an actor by seeing a little movie called Henry V with Laurence Olivier. Oh, yeah. That is the inspiration of why he became an actor. He, he basically interned and began his training at Montreal Rep. And there was another young guy who started training with him right at the same time. And that was William Shatner. Mm, wow. They go back and a long way. Yep. They wow. do. And then they went off. He, his first real professional gigs was with the Ottawa Stage Society, along with William Shatner. <laughs> <laughs> he started working on radio, and it was interesting doing radio plays back at that time in Canada. It was for the Canadian Broadcast Corporation. Um, they would do them in both French and English because, and oh, wow. so, and one of the people that he was acting with in these radio plays was William Shatner. <laughs> <laughs> He made his TV debut in Canada in 1953. He was in Othello, and it was starring Lauren Green as the Moor. Wow, so he worked with Captain Kirk and Commander Adama. Wow. Yep. yep. Wow, that is very cool. little Battlestar Galactica reference there. Interesting. <laughs> and he, he did tons of TV in this era, both in Canada and in the U.S. He made his Broadway debut in 1953. And if you look at his resume, and there's just way, way more than I could ever list, it is a ton, an absolute ton of theater. Um, he got his first Tony nomination when he was acting in a play directed by Elia Kazan. Oh, oh, wow. okay. He did lots of Shakespeare, went, performed at the Stratford Shakespeare Festival in 1956, playing Henry V. Mm. Um, Henry V comes up a lot. <laughs> and they took that production, which was a big hit, to the Edinburgh Festival. Mm. And on the day they were supposed to open for the Edinburgh Festival, he became quite ill. I don't know what the illness was, but he went to the hospital and they had to call up the understudy who had zero rehearsal, had never actually done the play. And that understudy was William Shatner. <laughs> and so he gets on stage with no practice that night. And everybody said the legend is that he killed it. <laughs> and Plummer comes back to the cast the next day and says, 
what what made him so good? And their answer was he did everything exactly the opposite of how you did it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Plummer was like, I can't spend any more time in the hospital. He went back on stage the next night and apparently he killed it as well. Oh, Um, wow. That's very cool. And 19, that 1956 production of Henry V is the last time Shatner and Plummer worked together Mm. until Star Trek VI. Wow. Wow. And interestingly, Star Trek VI is very, very much inspired by Shakespeare. So what goes around comes around. Well, that's what's so strange about it. And uh, he makes his film debut in uh, uh, 58, Sidney Lumet film, Stage Struck. Of course, the biggest movie that everybody knows him from is The Sound of Music, which is 1965. Mm-hmm. It replaced Gone with the Wind as the biggest movie of all time. Mm-hmm. Plummer's feelings about that film? <laughs> Pretty much hates it. Says it was a miserable <laughs> experience, except for working with Julie Andrews, who he loved. Yeah. He called, he would refer to it as S and M, the sound of mucus. Oh, he called, wow, said it was he really. I, I, this breaks my heart to hear this. <laughs> he said it was so awful, sentimental, and gooey. <laughs> but that's what we love about it. <laughs> uh, you know those tough, gritty Canadians. They hate that gooey stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and again, you know his resume: tons of theater, lots of roles in film. John, you know what? I had totally forgotten that he was in. What's that? One of our guilty pleasures that has come up many, many times on the cinephiles. Yes, Dragnet. Yes, he's so great because oh, uh, the Reverend wait, in Dragnet, wait, the, the Dragnet with uh, Dan Aykroyd and Tom yep. Hanks. Yes, yep. he was in that. Oh yeah, <laughs> I don't was, remember he, that. Is he the bad guy? <laughs> yeah, he is the bad guy. He's the Reverend uh, with the lisp. Yeah, he's fantastic. Oh, you know what? My fav- one of my favorite performances by Christopher Plummer is uh, he played Mike Wallace in mm. 1999's The Insider, directed by Michael Mann. Yeah. So that movie is just. I mean, terrific film about the tobacco whistleblower played by Russell Crowe yeah. and uh, Al Pacino plays the 60 Minutes producer who tries to uh, get him to do an interview. Uh, underrated film, one of the best movies of that year, 1999. 99 was a great year for movies, but Christopher Plummer was terrific. And I believe he got nominated for supporting actor for playing Mike Wallace. Yeah, he did. And he also, you know, all sorts of films, Malcolm X, he's in 12 Monkeys, Dolores Claiborne, he's in A Beautiful Mind, yeah. he's in National Treasure, he was one of the voices in Up. He he got an Oscar nomination in 2010 in The Last Station playing Leo Tolstoy. He's in Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And of course, most recently, he replaced Kevin Spacey in All the Many in the World receiving yeah. another Oscar nomination. And he's an Oscar winner. He finally got an Oscar supporting actor, I believe. Right, Steve? Yeah, that's in 2010. Oh, that was uh, Winners? That's Last Station. Last Station, Um, okay. um, In his career, he won two Emmys, two Tonys, a Golden Globe, a SAG Award, and a British Academy Award. And he just, it is just a massive storied career. Um, And you know what his favorite thing to play is? What's that? Villains. (laughs) <laughs> oh, well, then he must have uh, loved playing General Chang. <laughs> Real quick, he won the Best Supporting Actor for Beginners. Yeah, Beginners. Oh, I, I, I was just looking that up. You said Last Station, so yeah. yeah. Oh, thank you for correcting me. Yep. 
Uh, all because I'm that. knee deep in studying for the Schmodown right now. I'm trying to keep all this stuff in my mind. <laughs> it's yeah, nice. I don't know. I could only do the Schmodown if I had pages and pages of notes in front of me. <laughs> well, that's how it works. That's not how it works. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, An so, open uh, test. <laughs> yeah. Here's a tiny, I got a bit of pre-production and, and my guess is, Scott, you know more than me. So anything you want to jump in with. Um, but originally, the next Star Trek movie was going to be a prequel. Okay, gonna... so so there is a whole backstory here, a whole yeah. backstory. What do you do after Star Trek V? After Star Trek V, just... I think first drink. Of all, drinking but, is a good <laughs> idea. But, 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 but wait, guys, the thing that made Star Trek V hurt so much was that Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, was so great. Star Trek IV was a terrific movie, and I just rewatched that pretty recently, and it holds up fantastic. Like Star Trek VI, it is a message movie, hmm. but Star Trek IV was up until up until the 2009 Star Trek movie. Star Trek 4 was the highest grossing Star Trek movie of them all. Mm-hmm. And then Star Trek 5 comes out and it was just I mean I still I have to be honest, I still find it very difficult to watch Star Trek 5. Mm-hmm. Not just because it's not a very good movie, but because I don't like seeing these characters that I love in a not very good movie. Yeah. So what do you do after Star Trek 5? So basically what happened was uh, it almost didn't happen at all. Mm-hmm. There wasn't going to be a Star Trek VI. But what happened was then Paramount Studios president, Frank Mancuso Sr., he didn't want the original series crew to go out with Star Trek V. But he also didn't want to make a Star Trek movie that cost more than Star Trek V. Mm-hmm. So he said, we're going to do a Star Trek VI, but it will not cost a dime more than Star Trek V. And Star Trek VI wound up costing $27 million. Um, Now, there were different ideas. Mm -hmm. So Harv Bennett was the producer of Star Trek's two through five. Harv Bennett wanted to do a Starfleet Academy movie where we see how Kirk and Spock and McCoy met and, you know, got on the Enterprise. And Gene Roddenberry wasn't crazy about the idea. Mm -hmm. And even though he wasn't really involved with the Star Trek movies at that point beyond just being a creative consultant, but he still created the series. So he still had something to say about it, but Nimoy also was not crazy about doing a prequel set at Starfleet Academy. So, so long story short is that the Paramount president got with Nimoy and they agreed that it should feature the original crew and Harv Bennett's, script, his uh, idea, and his services as producer ended right there. And Leonard Nimoy became the executive producer of Star Trek VI. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things he wanted to do was bring back Nicholas Meyer to direct the film, because obviously, as we all know, Nick Meyer did such a great job directing Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And One one thing I find so interesting is that Nimoy, who spent the first five or six years after the series trying to distance himself from Star Trek and the role of Spock, really became at the center of Star Trek, you know, after and he even wanted to be off it entirely after Wrath of Khan. And then he becomes the core, really, the person keeping the torch alive. Yeah, he was definitely uh, definitely holding the torch. And it was uh, I think, I mean, any of those actors, especially Shatner and Nimoy, will tell you that that they were typecast after the original series went yep. off the air 
but but around the the early 90s they definitely even Shatner came around and said okay fine I'm Captain Kirk you got it you win but yeah you're right after directing Star Trek 3 and 4 especially 4 Nimoy became like the uh uh the 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 new Roddenberry in terms of being such a, a creative force to the direction of of those movies yeah. so the uh story was written by Nimoy with Lawrence Connor and Mark Rosenthal, the screenplay was written by Nicholas Meyer and Denny Martin Flynn. Principal photography on this movie lasted between April 11th to July 2nd, 1991. The domestic box office was 75 million, worldwide box office was 97 million. Mm. And, you know, Star Trek movies up until the 2009 movie, they just didn't make a lot of money at all, and especially not overseas. But the movie did get two Oscar nominations for makeup and sound effects editing. My understanding is that the basic idea of the film comes from Leonard Nimoy. And it comes from this moment of looking at the world and seeing it's the wall has come down in Berlin and the Soviet Union is breaking up and going, oh, how can we translate this? The wall becomes the neutral zone. The Soviet yeah. Union becomes the Klingons. And of course, the central action of the film, the disaster that starts it all, is Chernobyl. Chernobyl. And that is what he brings to Nicholas Meyer. Well, and that's what's great about the film. Once again, as I mentioned at the beginning of this thing, it's, it touches on the social stuff, which, is, was, which has always been the trademark and the hallmark, rather, of Star Trek. You know, bringing these social issues, bringing these real life issues into the into uh, into the films. You know, I know that Star Wars is influenced a lot by the Nazi regime. The Empire is that's what George Lucas has said. But Star Trek has always been kind of topical. It's always best when it's topical dealing with these philosophical conversations that were happening happening in our lives, in our world, even into next generation and all the subsequent series beyond. That's what makes Star Trek great. Star Trek is it's futuristic uh, in sci-fi, but it keeps the tenets of addressing social issues in the future that are occurring now, currently in our lives. Thank God they went that direction because they also had these ideas of where they all were being. Like Chekhov was a taxi driver, or Sulu was a taxi driver. They had all these weird ideas of where everybody had split off to, and then they were going to bring them all together, a la Armageddon, bringing them all together for one more mission. So okay, okay, John, I'm glad how it ended up. Yeah, I, I got a lot to say about, about what you said. First of all. I completely agree with you. Star Trek was always at its best when it had something to say. And when it said so in a subtle way, mm-hmm. like when you look back on an episode like uh, uh, Balance of Terror or Errand of Mercy or This Side of Paradise, you know, those episodes were about the Cold War. They yeah. were about Vietnam. They were about the the counterculture in, the, in, the, in San Francisco. And then you had episodes that were not very subtle. Yeah, you know, Frank, like Frank Gorshin like, one. Yeah, yeah. Let that be your last battlefield. Yeah. And and even a private little war, which is very, very much about Vietnam. Yeah. And, you know, interesting thing about uh, let that be your last battlefield with Frank Gorshin. So fans usually they have a love hate relationship with that episode because it was so on the nose. Yeah. But it is still the episode that people reference when they try to point out that Star Trek had something to say. For example, last summer, when the Black Lives Matter protests were happening, there were people writing about Star Trek, about the 60s, about the civil rights movement of the 60s, and and how entertainment had approached that. And they 
specifically pointed out that episode. Mm. Now, when it came to uh, the movies, the the only movie prior to Trek Six that really was a a a, a, a message movie was Star Trek Four, mm. Save the Whales. Everyone always refers right. to Star Trek Four as the one with the whales, which I think is a cool thing because people know about it to reference that and because of climate change and because of so many species that are that are in danger uh, of becoming extinct star trek 4 really holds up mm-hmm. now because star trek 6 was about the fall of the wall the breakup of communism breakup of the soviet union i always saw star trek 6 as as a movie that felt very dated mm-hmm. because of that now now, now I appreciate it more, but when it came out in 1991, I thought it was great because of that. But over the years, when I went back to Trek 6, when I talked about it with other people, I, I kind of went, yeah, it's a great movie, but if you, it's so dated. But mm-hmm. it's that dated element that sort of brings it back to being a really, really great movie. Uh, gentlemen, would you like to return to the 23rd century and enter the movie Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Let's do it. Fascinating. So, <laughs> so uh, we start with the credits. The music is quite ominous. And of course, the first thing we see is it says, for Gene Roddenberry, who died very shortly before this film came out. Okay, so, so one thing about the score. So the score was composed by Cliff Eidelman. Nicholas Meyer wanted to bring back James Horner mm to compose the score. James Horner composed the score for Star Trek II and Star Trek III. But James Horner's response when asked to do the score for Star Trek VI was, I've moved past Star Trek movies. Okay. <laughs> but I do. I want to point out uh, also, because you did too, Steve, about how ominous that opening that opening music is it's not like like when you when you watch star trek the motion picture and when you watch wrath of khan and, and the voyage home the music is very positive and aspirational and inspiring and and the music for star trek 6 is very you know very dark and ominous and it was also a little inspired by the planets uh the score for the planets mm-hmm. uh composed by gustav holst but it is not that right away we see that this is not going to be your daddy's Star Trek movie because it is so much darker. And that is correct. So Gene Roddenberry passed away on October 24th, 1991. And he saw a cut of Star Trek six gentlemen, two days before he died. Wow. So the way that story goes is when the movie was over and he was already very ill he gave a thumbs up to everyone in the room. Then he went back to his office and reached out to his attorney because he was livid, he was furious that the Starfleet command that is depicted in Star Trek VI is so racist and so militaristic. He he didn't like that at all, but then he didn't live long enough to see that uh, sort of lawsuit through and everything was uh, n- never went any further. But unfortunately, uh, Gene Roddenberry was not a fan of Star Trek VI. Hmm. Hmm. Um, I'm going to give you guys a little spoiler alert as we go into this film, which <laughs> is that I am fairly certain I like this. 
I really like the movie, but I'm also certain that I like it the least of the three of us. Wow. The things, okay. the things that I like, I absolutely love. There are scenes I adore in this film. And there's some other stuff that uh, I like, but doesn't quite deliver in the way that I want it to. So we'll get into a little bit of that later on. But right now we start as the music ends, the music drops out, there's a beat of silence, and then there is one of the biggest explosions I had ever seen in any science fiction movie up to this point. It looks spectacular, particularly because it's coming at us at a diagonal. And we cut from that intense special effect to a coffee cup. <laughs> and we're hearing Captain Sulu's captain's log. The coffee cup, by the way, is made by the same people who make China for the White House. Wow. Wow. Um, that's yeah. good trivia, Steve. <laughs> that that they can spend money on? All right. <laughs> and I, I love I love Captain Sulu. I love I leave seeing George Takei in this role. And we hear there's an energy so wave coming. He. I'm sure he does. Uh, we hear there's an any energy wave coming. He calls for shields. 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 And man. This ship gets hit by this energy wave, unlike anything I think has ever been in Star Trek. Is this the first time that a Star Trek movie starts off focusing on someone other than Kirk? I don't. I don't remember. You gentlemen well, might well, know Star better Trek, than I. Uh, Star Trek: The Motion Picture started off with the Klingons. <laughs> well, I mean, other, I'm sorry, of the original cast. Uh, is there a Star Trek movie that starts out? With uh, without starting yeah, on Kirk. Star Trek Two, starts off with Chekhov. Oh right, because he's on another. Oh, just like so. Maybe Meyer a little bit repeating the beats of Two, where he has one of the members on another ship, being a part of another crew, right? Uh, getting involved in something that uh, they didn't anticipate getting involved in. Interesting. Okay, but, but it's also what's also interesting, and I think it's a good payoff. Was it, mm. you know we we see the Excelsior for the first time in Star Trek Three, yeah, uh, and then. In Star Trek Four, at the end of the film, when when the crew is on the the shuttlecraft going to whatever their new starship is going to be, you hear Sulu say, "I'm counting on Excelsior." Excelsior, why in God's name would you want that bucket of bulls? <laughs> so, we've we've already established five years before this with Star Trek Six that that Sulu wanted the Excelsior, hmm. and the fact that we see him in the beginning of Star Trek Six. Not only did he get the Excelsior, he's the captain of the Excelsior. Right. And I thought that was just great. And even though it takes him away from the rest of the crew, he still has a very, very crucial role in this movie. And it's yeah. a great one. And you imagine this is happening because of the tension between the historical tension between George. I think that's what I thought at the time, because I was in I think I was just entering my 20s when this came out. And so I was aware and reading all of the, the stuff that was being reported behind the scenes on some of these magazines. You sense that there were issues with George Takai and Shatner. And maybe this was Takai's way of coming back. I'll come back to it, but I want my own ship. I want to be captain. I don't want to be working with Shatner too much. Um, <laughs> and yet it still works so well. They made it work so well. Yeah, he, well, he really, is... you could tell that George Decay just loved loved the, the development. I mean, it's it's development yeah. for his character. He's not yep. sitting at the helm going, you know, head warp one or, you know, it just, he had, it, it less was more for George in this mm -hmm. case. We make it through this huge energy film in the field. And the first thing that uh, Sulu does is 
is wants to contact the Klingon High Command because what we have learned is this explosion originated at Praxis, which is a Klingon moon, which is where they're big. It's their big energy moon, and there was some sort of accident. And the person who is setting up the communication is someone we know from that's that Scott and I have been talking about a whole bunch lately, mm -hmm. which is Grace Lee Whitney, who was Yeoman Rand in yeah. the original series. Grace Lee Whitney had popped up in, in Star Trek movies before. I mean, she was uh, uh, the transporter engineer in the motion picture. Mm -hmm. You see her really briefly on the space station when the Enterprise pulls up the space dock uh, and she's looking out at the Enterprise and sees how you know beat up it was. Mm -hmm. And she's like shaking her head like, oh man, wow. She, she only did like seven episodes of the original series. Mm -hmm. um, I just always wondered like what that show would have been like if she had stayed on, especially because of the connection between Rand and, and Captain Kirk. But she's back for this and it was such a great thing. And, and Steve, when I was watching this, I was thinking about the scene between between Sulu and Rand in the man trap with the in, in the botany, in the botany room. lab yeah yeah with the hand the plant <laughs> you know that <laughs> stupid plant <laughs> these are little tiny previews of what you would hear if you tuned into enterprise incidents with scott and steve the, <laughs> the ex exploration of the minutiae of all of those episodes um and what sulu does is we contact first we reach out and we see just the disaster of praxis explosions and then that cuts out, and we have a message from the Klingon High Command saying, everything's cool. It's no <laughs> problem here. here. Yeah. <laughs> See you later. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love the last moment where uh, they ask Sulu, are we reporting this? And he says, are you kidding? Are you kidding? Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> and now we cut to San Francisco and Starfleet Command, and wandering into this conference room is our original crew trying to figure out why th what they're doing here and john yes you're right there was a whole sequence they had planned of bringing the band back together mm. um i'm so glad they didn't do it it was so expensive and i agree with you i'm so because they would have i don't know, just would have felt weird to see them outside the universe of uh of star trek and outside the federation you know i mean i think that's why four diminishes in my opinion as i get older i just i don't like seeing them out in san francisco it actually isn't as cute for me as it was when i was younger and i prefer more of the stuff inside the battles what have you that's going on between this in space than i do them down on the ground trying to get all the stuff that they're trying to get so yeah so i would have it would have messed me up to see them like sulu as a taxi driver or check yeah. off working in the library or something yeah mm -hmm. yeah it was uh uh sulu was was a taxi driver he wasn't even mm. on the excelsior Chekhov was playing chess and he was mm. not not great at it uh, I, I think uh, Scotty was a, a professor of engineering at a school mm. and uh, Uhura was doing a radio show. And yeah, a radio yeah, show. Yeah, right. yeah. And McCoy, it was interesting. Like the, what they had McCoy doing was he was going to medical functions, but he was going to them drunk because he thought of the uh, hypocrisy of it all. So mm. I agree with you, John, 100%. I would not have liked to have seen these people, these these friends that I've loved for so much and for so long, uh, just not in their element. To have them just, they're still in Starfleet, they're still doing the thing and showing them, uh, showing up at the, you know, the Starfleet Council, mm -hmm. like, like you don't need, you don't need to reintroduce them, okay? I mean, I think Star Trek, the motion picture and Star Trek 2 mm -hmm. did, a, did a perfect job of that, okay? If you're watching Star Trek 6, 
You know who these people are. And we're in with the Starfleet brass. All the admirals are there. And we hear that the Klingon Empire has 50 years of life. Hmm. And we're going to turn this conference over to our special operative. And with a big entrance, as we see legs walking by, is Mr. Spock. The moon's decimation means the deadly pollution of their ozone. They will have depleted their supply of oxygen in approximately 50 Earth years. Due to their enormous military budget, the Klingon economy does not have the resources with which to combat this catastrophe. And they've opened up a dialogue with Chancellor Gorkin to negotiate peace. An end to almost 70 years of unremitting hostility, which the Klingons can no longer afford. And this is the Soviet Union. Yeah. You know, this is exactly what happened is that their economy was collapsing and they could no longer afford to continue the arms race in the Cold War. Scott, you know all this stuff about Roddenberry, so knowledgeable about the Star Trek and the history of it all. Do you think... And this may be why Roddenberry didn't like it. I mean, in his mind, he wanted a utopian future where there was no racism, there was no blah, blah, blah. But it, Star Trek VI really kind of exposes these fissures in the Federation. This idea, there are some people that are like, like Admiral Cartwright, who's like, uh, they become the, the trash of the universe. Like there's this pushback to this idea of seeking peace with the Klingons, uh, even Shatner later on is like, let them die. You know, there's yeah. this thing of like, well, this feels more realistic to what our future is going to be. We can aspire to all this stuff. And that was what was so great about the original series. But in the end, no matter where we go, no matter how many centuries we go forward, there will always be this side of it that's about uh, we're right, they're wrong, Let's destroy them completely. And I think that's why six still works. We're seeing it yet again in our world, in our country, around the world. These divisions and people wanting to win so badly on one side to crush and snuff out the voices of the other side completely. And, I, and, and that's why the film still holds up. And I think this is the more realistic uh, of, uh, of the Star Trek films in terms of dealing with issues like this. Well, first of all, I, I agree with you completely that that Star Trek VI holds up because of that reason. Yeah. Uh, but I also agree and and know just from so much of what I've read that this is why Gene Roddenberry did not did not fully approve or fully like Star Trek VI. He did mm. not want to see Starfleet. He did not want to see his characters uh, so flawed, so flawed. And, you know, there's... There's a couple of um, misunderstandings about Star Trek. You know, Star Trek was never about the perfection of mm -hmm. the human race. It was always about the striving yeah. for the perfection of the human race. And also this idea that, you know, Gene Roddenberry didn't want his characters arguing or he didn't he wanted everyone to be perfect. Look, I mean, if you go back to the original series, I mean, Spock and McCoy argue all the time. Yeah. You know, there were times many times where Kirk uh, snapped at either McCoy or Uhura and had to apologize. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's that great line in, uh, in Bounce of Terror, you know, the navigator was very racist against Spock when he thinks right. that he's a Romulan. And Kirk has to say to him, keep any bigotry in your quarters. There's no room for it here on the bridge. Right. So we were seeing that humanity had progressed to the point where they're able to have starships that go out where no one's gone before, mm -hmm. but we are still human and we are still flawed. 
And one of the great successes of the original series was that we were seeing these characters, we were seeing them learn, we were seeing them realize that mm-hmm. that they were wrong in certain ways. Look at Errand of Mercy. Yeah, they were wrong. Look at Devil in the Dark, and they're killing the Horda, and they're they were wrong. It was a mother. Look at look at Metamorphosis. You know the companion. We got to kill this thing. Wait, it's a woman in love with a man. We were wrong. You know, and this episode is a great example of we were wrong. Kirk could not get past his bitterness about the death of his son to mm-hmm. see that there was a future after the end of the neutral zone and that the Klingons weren't so bad and it's all going to be okay. He was wrong. Mm-hmm. And he says at the end of the movie, people can be very frightened of change. Yeah. So you hit the nail on the head, John, and this is a great reason why Star Trek six holds up so, so great. Yeah. And we're going to hear some of that reluctance, that anger, that distrust of the Klingons right now with Admiral Cartwright. Uh, And this is Brock Peters, and he says, I must protest. To offer Klingons safe haven within Federation space is suicide. Klingons would become the alien trash of the galaxy. First of all, that word trash is a problem. And if we dismantle the fleet, we'd be defenseless before an aggressive species with a foothold on our territory. The opportunity here is to bring them to their knees. Then we'll be in a far better position to dictate terms. Mm. Brock Peters, and, and you know, so this is a great example of what, what Nicholas Meyer wanted to do with Savick. When we see Brock Peters as Admiral Cartwright in Star Trek IV, and he's in the Starfleet headquarters as the, uh, the climate is beginning to really pack a while up onto the Earth, but we see him as, a, as an aspirational leading figure. So now two movies later, we now see Brock Peters as Admiral Cartwright, and he's very, very bigoted, very racist. Which is ironic, isn't it? To have a, to have a, to, and I wonder if they thought that ahead of time to have your black character kind of speak in these racist terms. It's very interesting when you look at it and uh, what the point they're trying to make here is. And of course, Brock Peters, uh, who has a long history in films since To Kill a Mockingbird. So yep. it's great to see him in a role like this in Star Trek. Uh, but it's such an interesting thing to hear him saying this. Yeah, sure. no, no, absolutely. Yeah, the, the whole idea of racism uh, uh, coming from a, a black character like that. Mm. Uh, it, it, you know, there there is so... There's so much going on in in Star Trek Six. There's so much, uh, so much is at a crossroads mm-hmm. because of this opportunity to establish peace with the Klingons, but at what cost? Well, people make a lot of money during conflict. People have purpose during conflict. What happens when you take away the money? You take away that purpose. People get scared. Yeah. It was 100% on purpose to have an African-American deliver this line. <laughs> it was 100% on purpose, the fact that this is the guy who played Tom Robinson in To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, right. um, Brock Peters hated it. Of course. Was really angry about it. Couldn't get through the whole speech in one take, which is why wow. they shot it from multiple angles. Wow. And it sounds like this was a conflict that happened multiple times on the set of people being reluctant to take it in such a dark direction. And it's a complicated thing. You know, you're on the aspirational show and people don't want to play this kind of stuff. And I think it's really powerful the way it's done. It's it's a great point you bring up, Stephen. It occurred to me as I was rewatching it, because I could never rewatch this movie enough. I rewatched it again for our 
for this podcast. And I, it occurred to me how dark it is. It's maybe it's really the, dark. The darkest of all six of the, and Khan, Khan gets pretty dark. Six is super dark. And mm-hmm. there are moments that where the characters themselves do certain things that you're very uncomfortable watching them do. Absolutely. Um, yeah, right? no, I, I mean, agree. Like McCoy lets that gentleman die. He's a doctor, and he lets that prisoner die right in front of him who gets thrown out when they get to Urapente. Mm. Spock puts both hands to essentially mentally rape Valeris. And mm-hmm. even Uhura, there's a shot of Uhura as a woman who is overwhelmed by that moment, feeling that uh, you know it, within her. And the stuff with Brock Peters... Uh, as well, there's that, that what we just talked about. So there's a lot that Meyer is pushing onto this in a way, almost dragging this franchise one last time forward uh, into the '90s to make it relevant before he has to, before the crew walks away. Well, while Nicholas Myers is forcing the cast of Star Trek to do something they don't want to do, Captain Spock is forcing the crew of the Enterprise and Captain Kirk to do something they don't want to do because not only is he trying to negotiate this peace with the Klingons, but he has also volunteered the crew of the Enterprise to be the ship that escorts Chancellor Gorkin from the Klingon Empire back to Earth. We volunteered. And by the way, one of the ways that they saved money was using the Citizen Kane trick of just don't light the background, and then you don't have to have as much of a set. So that's very, very dark where they are, probably the darkest of anything in Star Trek, I think. And Kirk is mad. And it's so crazy to see these people, two guys who are the best of friends, having a real, genuine conflict. And Spock's reply is, There's an old Vulcan proverb. Only Nixon could go to China. (laughs) (laughs) Star Trek VI is a movie that, you know, I've seen it so many times, Mm. like so many times, but I haven't watched it straight through in a long time. Mm. And the perspective that you get with things just when you get older, when you live life, when you've lived through the the year that we've lived through. Oh, yeah. Great point. Okay. Yeah. And – you know, when it comes to seeing our beloved characters cross the line, yes, that is still hard. Like that is something that I still haven't quite wrapped my head around and embraced mm-hmm. like other aspects of the film, particularly when it comes to what we're about to see in this scene. My father requested that I open negotiations. I know your father's the Vulcan ambassador, for heaven's sake. But you know how I feel about this. They're animals, Jim. There is an historic opportunity here. Don't believe them. Don't trust them. And then Spock says, Jim, they're dying. And when Shatner says, oh, let them die. Mm. The, the intensity in which Shatner delivers that line, which just like you pointed out how Brock Peters had a problem with that scene, Shatner did not like filming this scene he thought it was too much for kirk wow and i have to say that that when you go back to the original series you know when kirk was making the wrong case it was out of ignorance Mm -hmm. it was because he didn't know like he was out to kill the horda he didn't know that it was a mother and then Mm -hmm. he was like wait a minute i was wrong when he was out to kill the companion because it was keeping them from going back to the Enterprise to save the woman, and then he finds out that the companion is a female, 
He was like, wait a minute, I was so wrong. <laughs> but with Star Trek VI, after all of his experiences during his command of the Enterprise, including the experiences he had in Star Trek II, Three, and Four, for him to still be in such a hateful place over being bitter about the death of his son and still holding a grudge about that, yeah. not realizing the gravity of this situation, to see Kirk, this character who I have idolized hmm. and my entire life, like, I want to be Kirk. I still do. And to see him say that, let them die. Yeah. Uh, it's still it's it's still hard to watch. So I have a lot of thoughts about this. First thing is, is that the way it went down with Nick Myers, this is my understanding, is that Shatner said, I don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, and Nick, you know, really pushed and said, no, no, I got to do it. And then Shatner said, okay, I'll do it. But after I say it, I'm going to shake it off and give an expression of, no, no, I didn't really mean that. Mm -hmm. And the only way I'll do it is if you let me do that thing and you cannot cut it out of the movie. And Nick says, absolutely, that's fine. I promise I won't cut it out of the movie. And of course, he did cut it out of the movie. Right, right, um, that's right. I think, personally, it's a great moment. Yeah. I think it's really good. I think one of, and I also totally understand why Roddenberry is objecting to this stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I'm definitely of the camp that I think Roddenberry becomes the problem in Star Trek at a certain point. And particularly some of the idealized stuff, I think he loses track of all the stuff that Scott was talking about, all the conflicts within the show. Mm -hmm. What I don't like as much, and this is what we'll get into a little later, mm -hmm. it totally makes sense to me that Kirk hates the Klingons. They killed his son. Yeah. Like that's way beyond anything else that's ever happened in, the, in, in his character. Mm -hmm. I don't understand why the whole crew is racist. That's what bothers me, is that I wish there was more argument between them later on, rather than all of them, Chekhov, Uhura, Scotty, McCoy, all making these comments later on in the film. Ooh, and just let's to, talk to, about to, to, uh, Just to, to, to clarify what you were saying about, about what Shatner wanted. First of all, he filmed, he filmed that scene in one complete take. Mm. So then Kirk says, he says, let them die. And he just like waves it off to be like, he waves it off to say like, no, no, I, I didn't mean that. But Meyer cut that part out and all you see in all you hear is Kirk saying, let them die. And I have like, that still does not sit well with me regardless of, of all of the uh, aspirational qualities about Star Trek. But also, you know, Steve, you mentioned how Roddenberry was becoming part of the problem now. In the first two seasons of The Next Generation, which I have to say are two of the worst seasons of yeah. the next generation. Yes. <laughs> um, the show was way too idealistic. I mean, I, and I, and I hate that Wesley Crusher saves the ship in every episode. I can't stand that, <laughs> but it was only when Roddenberry stepped down as a producer and you had writer producers like Ron Moore, Brandon Braga, uh, Michael Piller, you know, when those guys came on in the third season, you started to have that internal conflict on the next generation which made Next Generation a much better show. And there was internal conflict in the original series. And I don't know why Roddenberry kind of forgot about that. But I mean, and he put it in there, you know? Yeah. I mean, he rewrote a lot of those uh, first season episodes. So he yeah. was part of that. Um, 
But people are not going to be perfect by the 23rd century or the 24th century or the 32nd century, which is now where we are with Star Trek Discovery. But where this original series crew went was a little too dark for me. It still is. Mm -hmm. But I, I appreciate it for the sake of drama and conflict yeah. and intensity. But it's like, you know, I love these guys. Mm -hmm. But it's a, it's a great back and forth when you – Put this scene next to the scene later on in the movie, the end of the movie, where Scott, as Scott was mentioning earlier, where Kirk uh, and Spock have that conversation where, where Spock starts, I, I, I want to be in the dark when they're in the room and they're having this back and forth about being too old. And Kirk is revealing his prejudices, revealing what he's learned uh, in this mistake that he made. And it's so great because at the beginning, they're both so adamant about their points of views. And when they have that conversation at the end as friends, they're both conciliatory about the mistakes they made in their approach to this opportunity, this this totally out of nowhere, a massive opportunity to finally end decades of war between the Klingons and the Federation. And it's, it's and great. It, it's a great scene, and the, the the scene literally ends with an image that is literal and figurative in, in the sense that they're both standing on opposite ends yes. of the table. Yes. Yeah, you know, yeah. uh, they are they are miles apart on how they <laughs> feel about this, but they, yeah. you know, got it, got it, got they got a job to do, and they're mm -hmm. they're going to do it. Well, let's go do that job. We end up back on the bridge of the Enterprise, and this is where we meet Lieutenant Valeris, Kim Cattrall. And from what I understand, another part of this is that. Nicholas Meyer and Roddenberry clashed all through the early pre-production of this movie because Meyer wanted to bring back, from one hand, you gentlemen can correct me, but Meyer wanted to bring back Savick and turn Savick into the villain. And Roddenberry was like, you're not doing that. And Meyer's like, you're not going to tell me what I'm going to do with the character I created. So there's a lot of battles all around before it finally settled to what it got to, which is Nimoy and the script and what have you. But there were a lot of battles initially trying to get this thing squared away. Meyer was no wallflower in this whole thing. He wasn't like, oh, my God, thank you for having me back. He really wanted to because he knew what, how Star Trek worked best clearly off of Khan. So he wanted to have way more say in six and its direction and what he felt comfortable making. That's correct. Nicholas Meyer wanted Savick to be the Valaris character. Yeah. Because he felt that having Savick betray Kirk and betray the Enterprise and betray the Federation. Spock. Yeah. And, and betray and betray Spock. Yeah. That would have had such a a, a bigger and, and I agree, it would have had a massive, massive impact. And the only reason, the only way that Nick Meyer was going to do that was if he could get Kirstie Alley to play oh, wow. Savick. To bring her back. Wow. Yeah, he did not. He did. Uh, uh, bringing back Robin Curtis as Savick was not, was not the option. Wow. It was only if he could bring back Kirstie Alley. So they went to Kirstie Alley. And Kirstie Alley at that point was very, very much at the top of her game mm -hmm. with cheers. And she said... She would only do it if they paid her a lot of money. And like I said before, they didn't have a lot of money to spend. Yeah. So they didn't cast her. And the character was rewritten as a new character, Valaris. Now, yeah. Kim Cattrall, when she was in talks to play Valaris, she didn't realize at first 
that it was a new character. She thought that she was going to play Savick. Oh, wow. And she did not want to play Savick because she thought that Savick was, quote unquote, just a girl. <laughs> and when she found out that, oh, no, no, it's Valeris, it's a new character, then she was in. And the irony here, gentlemen, is that Kim Cattrall actually auditioned back in the early 1980s <laughs> to play Savick. Wow. Well, you know. By the way, how do you feel about the shaved sides of her hair just over her Vulcan ears? Well, it's different. <laughs> uh, I, I listen, I thought that she did a great job with the role. Uh, I, I would have been interesting, you know, knowing, seeing how she played Valeris in Star Trek VI. I wonder how she would have played Valeris or how she would have played Savick rather mm -hmm. if she had indeed indeed been cast in, in Star Trek 2. But you know what? Christy Alley was terrific as Savick in Star Trek 2. She was perfect. Mm -hmm. It's so funny because the main thing I think of Kim Cattrall for is Sex in the City, big, Sex in the City and Big Trouble in Little China. Oh, <laughs> both, okay. both of which are as far away from this as possible. And the Porky's. one thing we find. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and Porky's. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Porkies. <laughs> yeah, we're all 80s kids. We know that movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what we find out is there's some relationship with Spock that they know each other. He's been her sponsor. She's top of her class. The first Vulcan ever to be top of their class at mm -hmm. the Academy. And it's time to head out. And and she says... Half thrusters. Thank you, Lieutenant. One quarter impulse power. Captain, may I remind you that regulations specify thrusters only while in space dock? And I love that there's sort of a reaction around the room as uh, Lieutenant Valaris questions Captain Kirk. And then she goes in and does it. This might be my favorite, it's small, but this might be my favorite launch of the Enterprise. It's mm. so, there's so much love. And I love the music. I love it going out. I love the pride on Scotty's face. I love, mm. you could see that they just love flying a starship. You know? I, I don't, dude, have you seen Star Trek The Motion Picture lately? <laughs> I, I gotta say that that launch of the Enterprise and Star true. Trek the Motion Picture, it's great. We are we are seeing the refurbished Enterprise, the Enterprise which has never looked better than it did in Star Trek the Motion Picture, mm -hmm. launch out of that space dock and the look of pride and 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 and, uh, and, and joy on Kirk's face when he says, "Take us out." I mean, yeah. and and Jerry Goldsmith's score. Sure, I, I'm telling you, the Motion Picture. I, I have grown to love that movie more and more over the years. It has aged better than any other Star Trek movie. And it it has gone up and up and up in, the, in my ranking of the Star Trek films as, as a result of that. And, uh, but yes, uh, the, the, the launch in Star Trek six is good. I mean, how many times are you going to watch the enterprise? You launched in Star Trek one and you launched in Star Trek two. I mean, now they're watching again in Star Trek six, there was a launch in Star Trek five, how many times are you going to watch the Enterprise? <laughs> it's all part of the stuff. And we end up in the uh, captain's quarters. And and we mentioned that the budget was fairly small for this. Uh, so this million. captain quarters is the same captain quarters that was originally built for the 1979 movie. It's <laughs> doubles as Spock's quarters later on in this film. And it also is current was currently being used as Data's quarters in Next Generation. Wow. Ah, we're reusing a lot of sets. Well, well, when they, they filmed Star Trek VI, uh, between, like I said, between April and July of 1991, it was between seasons four and five of The Next Generation. So they were not filming at the same time. Um, and we hear his captain's log, and it is pretty dark. I've never trusted Klingons. 
and I never will. And he's holding a picture of David, his son, murdered by the Klingons. I can never forgive them for the death of my boy. Spock says this could be an historic occasion. I'd like to believe him. How on earth can history get past people like me? For him to be stuck in the past like that, if anyone in Star Trek should see the light, it should be Kirk. I mean, yeah. this is the guy who said risk is our business. I mean, this is the guy who who quoted the the, the Constitution of the United States to to in, in the Omega Glory. I mean, you know, this is the guy who came up with the Corbomite maneuver. So I feel like uh, it is it is depressing, I have to say, to see Kirk just so so down like this. And who overhears the last bit of this is Lieutenant Valeris sitting, which to me is like, you could just walk into the captain's quarters. That seems kind of weird. <laughs> You've piloted well out of space, Dr. Lieutenant. I've always wanted to try that, sir. <laughs> and then we kind of stay with Valeris because we end up with her and her sponsor, Spock. This is, of course, the same room. So, so really, Valeris just stood there while they redressed it. <laughs> and and uh, he has a painting in his quarters. The painting is of the expulsion from paradise. It's a reminder to me that all things end. It is of endings that I wish to speak. And Spock's reply is, you must have faith that the universe will unfold as it should. And I love this line. But is that logical? Surely we must. Logic, logic, logic. Logic is the beginning of wisdom, Valeris, not the end. Mm -hmm. Wow. Two things happening here. Paradise lost, right? It's the end of innocence. And it's this idea, once again, Star Trek, what it aspired to be in the 60s, it's the 90s now. We got to deal with the reality of it. And that's what six does. And I love that as most of our teachers, just like Yoda said in Rise of Skywalker, which a lot of people had issues with, but I loved. I love it greatest, too. The greatest teacher is failure. And what Spock is saying here, when I was a young man, I thought as a young man, logic, logic, logic. Now that I've gotten older, I've become wise. And to me, I understand now that logic is the beginning of wisdom. And then there's so much more to go mm. to get to, to understand how to uh, handle or dissect a situation to its best possible outcome. So, so much is happening here in these interactions between them. So, first of all, you just totally blew my mind. It never occurred to me the being thrown out of paradise the contrast between the series and oh. where this episode is yeah that that's that's amazing and the thing i think about with spock is like what's his journey you mm -hmm. know like and we because we talked about him in these films is that in he's trying to get rid of all emotion in in motion picture and then through his interactions with veger realizes the importance of his friendships and of those emotions mm -hmm. and then we ha and then he dies comes back to life mm -hmm has to relearn kind of who he is. And the Spock post-V'ger, post-death is a very different person. And Good so this point. idea yeah. of logic is the beginning of wisdom, not the end, is that, well, that's his journey. That's That, to me, is the entire journey of Mr. Spock in throughout Star Trek. Logic mm -hmm. is the beginning of wisdom, not the end. Right. And there's definitely a difference to Spock after, after Star Trek III, because in, in Star Trek Four, we've we've already seen that he has uh, to rediscover who he is, and 
you know, after you die and come back to life, I'm guessing you're never quite the same, are you? <laughs> True. Yes. I love, by the way, that the scene ends with him saying, this is my last voyage as a member of this crew. I intend you to replace me. And she says, I could only succeed you, sir. Great scene. And, and just imagine now all of that, but with Kirstie Alley as Savick. Yeah. That what? would have, I mean, it's a great scene, but damn, damn, Kirsty, how, like, why couldn't you just <laughs> do it? <laughs> well, and let me ask you something, uh, Scott and Steve. From what I understand, there was also this, like, subplot they were going to add where Valeris or Savick was going to have a romantic relationship with Spock and have a child. And, like, there were rumors with Robin Curtis as Savick that, that was going to happen in four, and they were really going to lean into it. And there's there's an element of it bubbling yeah. underneath the surface and the sharing of the of the cup of water. Like it's it's kind of sexual a little bit in its own way, um, without being overt. And I wonder if that was something they wanted to really uh put in there and have as an element between the two. Because Cottrell and Kirstie Alley both radiate a very strong sexual energy. For sure. Uh, I mean, of course Kirstie Alley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but you know what? If you look at the scene in Star Trek Four, the beginning of Star Trek Four, right before the uh, the bird of prey takes off from Vulcan, mm. and and Savick says goodbye to Spock, and like they she she she's already said goodbye to Captain Kirk, and she turns around to walk out, and yeah. Spock is standing there, and when she looks up at him, she's like startled. Yeah, it's a it's an awkward moment. There's yeah. some there's a little bit of sexual tension there at least yeah. on her part not on his mm. but on her part because you know she helped them get through the pod far when yeah. they were on the genesis planet in the previous movie so maybe there were look if 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 the remember moment from star trek 2 can plant the seed for everything that happened in star trek 3 that pod far moment certainly Steve, uh, uh, john could have planted the seed for uh, a deeper relationship mm. uh and a family between yeah. spock and savick that would have been very very interesting because then you would have had a child that is part human part vulcan part romulan yeah yeah well i think the there is an implication one can one could argue that spock does have sex with savick mm. on the genesis planet because we see the beginning of the ponfar and the ponfar is vulcans have to mate right. you know so yeah. like that's and so had they brought Savik here, then this thread, John, that you bring up, I think mm. would make more oh, sense. Th th yeah. This is All this right, is yeah. this is one of the things because it feels because I agree with you, I totally agree with you, John. That that like there is a sense that wait, is there a romantic thing going on here? Yeah. Like what's the deal? And there are little hints of it, yeah. but they don't really do it. And I it, mm. it's and it's one of the things i don't like is like mm. look either do it or don't do it and by the way don't do it because mr spock is old you know <laughs> well, he's an old dude i don't know how it works on the vulcan side of things but but in yeah, star trek in star trek three it was savik who was the older one so right. so exactly so th that's that that's where that's where it happened yeah she helped them yeah. get through the pod far and I, I mean to have that that moment alone mm -hmm. and then have that character betray spock to have Savick betray Spock in Star Trek Six, that would have, I mean, look, nothing wrong with the way the scene played out with Valaris, yeah. but the history between Savick and Spock would have just yeah. given this yeah. movie so much more weight. I really believe that. Mm -hmm. By the way, what Nicholas Myers says is he says 
that Valeris is completely freaking out on the inside during this scene, and Spock fails to notice it. Wow. Really? Yeah, watching, watching it this time, I tried to figure out where Spock starts to suspect Valeris and where Kirk starts to suspect the conspiracy. And so it's like I'm watching to see where the moments are. It was fascinating because, like, that's great acting if it's a subtle thing you're catching for half a second, you know, and so it's great. But even even though it is a new character that we're only seeing in this movie for the first and last time, you know, I know we're 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 got quite a ways to go before we get there. But yeah. the reveal of Valeris when I saw this movie for the first time, I did not see that coming. Mm. Well, one of the things, one of the questions that never occurred to me until watching it this last time, and this is and and it's something that happens much later, but I'm going to bring it up here, which is that when Valeris is is being interrogated on the bridge. Yeah. She quotes back what Kirk said about not trusting the Klingons. And and it suddenly occurred to me, it's like, wait, is it Kirk that made Valeris decide to do what she did? There's an mm -hmm. implication in the way the scene happened that if she hadn't walked in to hear the final thing that he said, that she wouldn't have made this choice. Mm. Um, and, I, and, and I'm not sure, do, did, did that occur to either of you or what do you think? Great question. I, I need to think about that. What do you think, John? Uh, I don't know, to be honest with you. I don't know. And as we go along, I think it'll become clearer because I hadn't thought of it quite hey, like that. Let's revisit that question. Yeah. <laughs> All right. well, what's your thoughts on it, Steve? I th I think it's half there. Yeah. Like I, 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 to, me, to me, I wish there's just some things where I think this could be better. Okay. It's like I think I think you either do that or you don't. You know, it's the same with yeah. the Spock Valeris relationship. It's like, well, either do it or don't. Wow. You know, um, Steve, <laughs> such a direct subtlety's okay, man. Subtlety's okay. A little flirty. sometimes, let it let it dance around there. Um, sometimes, yeah, yeah. But maybe there wasn't a point to have that relationship. So having it just hinted at uh, is just there for you to catch if you want to catch it. But it's not actually going to play out. But oh, but then again, it. I mean, the moment, like I said, Nimoy's reaction. After he pulls his hands off Valeris later on in the movie, you feel that in your soul. Oh, absolutely, yes, right? yeah. And says, you hear you hear Nimoy's voice crack too. Yeah. So yeah, there's know. a lot. There, that scene cool. is really yeah, really. There's solid. a lot. There's a lot of stuff going on. We see the Klingon ship. It is the same model from uh, motion picture. And Kirk is on the bridge, and we're discussing whether or not we're going to raise shields, and we don't. And we call them, and there is uh, Chancellor Gorkin on the screen. He is both based on Gorbachev, but visually he was based on Abraham Lincoln because he's got that Lincoln-esque oh, yeah. beard. Right. Um, the great David Warner. Love David Warner. Who, by David the way, Warner's... was in Star Trek V, different character. Yes. Yes. So... How, did they get, how did they get away with that? He's like, well, let's bring him back. Why? Well, let's and bring him back. In, you know he's... what? He didn't deserve Star Trek V. Yeah. Let's give him Star Trek VI. And he's in he's in Next Generation, like a, a season oh. or so later, because wow. um, he tortures Picard. Oh, um, right. There are four lights! <laughs> that's a great, that's a really good episode. And Kirk, in this moment of tension, does something completely surprising to, I think, everyone on board, including Spock, which is to invite them to have dinner over on the Enterprise. Yeah. They accept, and as Kirk is heading out, Valeris says there's a supply of Romulan ale that might make the evening go more smoothly. They're so smart here, Steve and Scott, of how they, as you said, Scott, I was surprised too, and I'm sure Steve was, or maybe he figured it out ahead of time, but like, I was surprised when the turn happens because Valeris is so essential 
to um, trying to make this happen in a way that's positive, whatever her reservations are. And so when the twist happens, it is a shock because throughout she's helping when they're going after who the people were with the boots. She's in charge of the investigation. There's so much about her that you think she's on Kirk's side uh, that I think it's brilliant. But the other side of it is too, I like that Nicholas Meyer doesn't let you put Kirk in a box necessarily. Right off the, yes, let them die. But then he's like, well, bring him over for dinner. So he's going on his own journey step by step throughout this whole process of where he lands on this as well, you know, because he must trust Spock as his friend, whether he's pissed off or not. It doesn't mean it doesn't affect him to rethink his own points of views on the situation and to create space for certain moments of respect or courtesy uh, that a captain must administer in certain situations. So I love that. There's also an argument that the Romulan ale is part of her plot. <laughs> Good well, well you could argue that now, but when you're watching it for the first time, you just no. think that she's being very attentive and on the yeah. ball. Right. Exactly. A hundred percent. Absolutely. Uh, it was part of the, that was part yeah, of the plan. Right. <laughs> the and the last, the last line of the scene is from Chekhov who says, Guess who's coming to dinner? Now that line, <laughs> I hate that line, even when Chekhov says it, but <laughs> that line was originally going to be said by Uhura. And Nichelle Nichols refused. Yep. She said, there's no way I am saying that line. <laughs> so it is a, you know, and, and it is a racist line. And of course it is a, an allusion to the 1967 mm. classic starring Spencer Tracy and uh, Sidney Poitier and Catherine Hepburn. Um, and I just, again, you know, I, I don't like the line. I don't like that Chekhov says it. Yeah. I don't like seeing our crew this way. Mm-hmm. You know, they've been through so much during their five-year mission. By the way, they had their five-year mission that we saw in the original series. Mm-hmm. And then there was a second five-year mission that Kirk had with the Enterprise after Star Trek The Motion Picture. We never saw any of that. I mean, yeah. we saw them in books. You know, there were novels about that about that five-year mission. But but when Kirk says at the end of Star Trek The Motion Picture, out there, that away. They they go on another five year mission. There's a whole other five year mission with Kirk and the Enterprise and Spock and McCoy and Scotty after the five year mission that we saw in the original series. Interesting. Interesting. The, what okay. exactly their ages are, how long they've been doing this, and why have the rest of the crew other than Sulu not gotten promotions? It seems a little strange, <laughs> but. Um, but uh, we're in the transporter room. This is the redressed uh, next generation transporter room. And now we get to meet our Klingons. Uh, we see the woman first. That's Chancellor Gorkin's daughter. And we see Chancellor Gorkin. And there is a very slow tilt up from the like giant tusk cane, whatever it is, to awesome. Gorkin. Um, and he presents his crew. Um, he says hello to Spock, presents his daughter, presents his military advisor, who's like a giant. And then he presents his chief of staff, General, General Chang. Chang. And when Chang, when Chang beams aboard the Enterprise, his head is tilted. And when he turns back to face the Enterprise crew, you see as he's beaming in and as his face becomes more clear that he is wearing an eye patch that is nailed into his face. Yeah. So you know this guy is hardcore, baby. He is a serious, serious figure. And when Christopher Plummer passed on, 
I posted on Twitter with a picture of Plummer as Chang. Yeah. And I said, and I mean this, there have been a lot of really great actors who have played Klingons. When you look at John Calicos from Errant of Mercy and especially uh, Michael and Sarah from Day of the Dove, what mm. a great, great Klingon mm. he is. And then obviously, uh, you know, Christopher Lloyd in Star Trek Three, he was terrific. But Christopher Plummer took took that whole notion of playing a Klingon to another level. Yeah. Like he he gave it such, I don't want to say credibility, but prestige. Mm-hmm. I mean, he for for obvious reasons I say this, but he took playing a Klingon to a Shakespearean level, <laughs> and that that level it fit, it worked, it made sense. He milked it and was an amazing, an amazing character. And the fact that Christopher Plummer was so committed, he was so committed to playing Chang. This movie is all the better for it. Don't you think, John? Uh, Yeah, a thousand percent. I mean, that's the, I know he's done a million things, but this is what I always have at the top of my heart when I think of Christopher Plummer as Chang. He's so, you're so a thousand percent right. There have been great actors to play Klingons. So many different varieties of Klingons we've seen over the years up until this point. Uh, but there was something about Plummer's performance that was a cut above uh, everyone else. And it was a, an exciting new approach to the to a Klingon. Um, and he felt like one that could actually go to toe, toe-to-toe with Kirk. Yeah, he absolutely. Felt, yeah. And, that, and that was essential <laughs> for what you were doing here. Plus, and I want to give a quick shout-out to Rosano DeSoto, the first Latina I think to appear in Star Trek. So this, right. wow. that's absolutely great, right. Mm-hmm. Yep. This was a great moment for me personally as a as a man coming into understanding his Latin roots, seeing her on the screen made me so happy uh, uh, for sure uh, as the daughter. And of course, she's the mom, I think, in uh, La Bamba. So it was great to see her. Oh, come. yeah. It's great to see her stepping in and doing that, too. So, yeah. and of course, you know, I, I mentioned Greg Klingons. And of course, I, you know, uh, you know, by this point, we've already had four years of Michael Dorn as right as you know wharf and we also will see michael dorn in this movie yes uh playing Worf's great grandfather which is uh pretty cool <laughs> i think what christopher Plummer does in this movie is amazing i think he he practically steals every scene that he's in and i think that there are so many layers in his performance because you can see he's saying a thing but he's yeah. also joking about the thing that he's saying and he's also toying with Kirk and poking him and prodding him. He's got this big personality. And I totally agree with you, John. This guy seems like a match for Kirk. Oh, yeah. Like, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, in the same way that Khan is, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like, the, 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 absolutely. Think, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, absolutely. Just when, when Chang first of all introduces himself to Kirk. I have so wanted to meet you, Captain. I'm not sure how to take that. You're not just looking at a an amazing character, two amazing characters, you know, meeting. Mm-hmm. You're looking at, as we've established, you know, Steve, when you say your bio for Plummer at the beginning of this of this uh, podcast, there is a long history between these two guys, mm-hmm. William Shatner and Christopher Plummer, and to to see them not just be in the same movie together, but go head to head with each other, is just fantastic. I I, I again. Christopher Plummer brings this movie to another level. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So Nick Myers says that he had seen Plummer in the theater many times and that he wrote the part for him. Oh, wow. And, and this is where 
we will never know the truth because Nimoy says a whole bunch of people turned it down before Christopher Plummer. <laughs> so, so when, how, what exactly happened? I don't know. Plummer also turned it down and then Nimoy had a meeting with him and convinced him hmm. to do it. Um, Good thing he did I, it. <laughs> there's all sorts of <laughs> mad dogging and looks between Kirk oh. and, and Chang. It's fantastic. Yeah. And then they say, we're going to go on a tour and they leave, leaving two crew members alone who say just horrible things. They all look alike. What about that smell? Oh, it's awful. This this is the stuff that that even today I, I don't like seeing from from a, from the crew of the Enterprise, even people on the lower decks. And this is exactly the sort of thing that must have incensed Roddenberry. I imagine so. I imagine so. But, you know, this is the reality of life. And I'd like to... And it's ironic that it's Valeris who's the one that stops them and says, yeah, yeah. the She's gentlemen have work. work. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. she goes, that's snap to it. Yeah. <laughs> and I think those are the two guys who end up doing the murder. So I think that's what well, she's... Oh, really? I think. I think. But... Uh, it's oh an interesting God, moment. Wait, John, you're right. I, they are. I think they John, are the two guys. They are. Yeah. When she so, says, You men have work. Yes, yes ma'am. Ma then snap to it. She's saying, Go kill the Chancellor. Yep. You guys know what to do. You got to plan right. this thing. I didn't out. realize they were the same guys. Mm. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. John, I didn't realize either. Yeah. So, so because the, that's actually brilliant. And thank you for pointing it out. It's because, a nice double meaning there. Yeah. Right. Because you go, oh, she is doing the good thing mm -hmm. in this scene when in fact she's doing the bad thing. Yes. Right. Um, I'm totally fine with there being racism in the Star Trek universe. I think it's great because mm -hmm. I think that's how we ad address these issues. Right. It's just too ubiquitous on this ship in too, way too prominent a way for me. Well, and I get that. And I think that's a fair feeling, obviously, Steve. Uh, but I also think if if let it marinate a little bit that it's these two guys that say these things, because these are the two guys that carry out the assassination and they must feel this way, you imagine, in order to carry out this assassination. So I wonder how much you're, Valeris had in, I think, in recruiting them. So I don't no, know. you're totally right. I, no. I think that's absolutely true. It's the it's the, what we're going to hear from the rest of our crew. Yeah. Yeah. You so know, wrong. Would you like to go to dinner? <laughs> sure. <laughs> it is a big, long table with our Klingons and our crew. It's very fancy. There's waiters with napkins over their arms, pouring big, big tumblers of Romulan ale. How strong do you think Romulan ale is? <laughs> well, it's got to be pretty strong if it gives Kirk a headache. Yeah, but, I was going to say. <laughs> but the, the, yeah, right. <laughs> um, but the thing is that, the tension in this scene, I yeah. mean, you could cut it with a phaser on <laughs> overload. I mean, it is just so, so tense. Yeah. And when they're when they're taking their napkins out, you see the Klingons don't know quite how to, what, what am I supposed to do with this? Like right. Klingons, I guess, don't use napkins. It's just everything about this scene, despite their best efforts to to try to make nice, you know, they're still saying ignorant things. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Chekhov talking about inalienable rights. Inalien, if you could only hear yourselves. Human rights. Why, the very name is racist. It's a very intense but it's a it's a powerful scene because the, the performances throughout this scene are all terrific. 
Yeah, they really are. By the way, one of the problems with uh, and John, I'm, you've probably been through this when you're mm-hmm. acting in a movie and there's food is you're going to do take after take after yeah. take. And the more people in a scene, the more coverage you have to do. So yeah. you have to do a, everybody's close up, two shots, wide shots, moving shots, all this stuff. And every time people have to eat. So smart actor who Shatner describes it as like you go, oh, yeah, you're almost about to take the bite, but you never actually take the bite. And this food was particularly nasty because it's like blue. squid dyed with <laughs> blue food coloring. And and but Nick Myers really wanted people to eat. So he said, I will give twenty dollars to each actor for every take that they actually eat in. Wow. <laughs> and Shatner, who wasn't gonna eat at all, takes that as a challenge. <laughs> and he says he made twelve hundred bucks off of Nicholas Myers that day. <laughs> Of course he did. Um, and then he threw up, didn't he? I mean, come on. It just looks uh, nasty. Uh, it's so unappetizing. And Ch- Chancellor Gorkin makes a toast. I offer a toast. The undiscovered country. And everyone kind of gives a look, and then he says, the future. But the, um, the undiscovered country is also death. It's death. Because in Hamlet, Act 3, Scene 1, which is when when that line is uttered, yeah. Hamlet is talking about death, but you could look at death as the future. I mean, we all are facing it eventually, hopefully not for a very, very, very long time. Now, the title, The Undiscovered Country, was the working title for Star Trek II. Mm. The Undiscovered Country, if it means death, is fitting for that movie because yeah. of what happens at the end of that movie to a couple of people. Mm-hmm. So he called it Vathakine, and now Star Trek Six is the undiscovered country. And I don't know if you guys knew this, but you have never really experienced Shakespeare <laughs> until you've heard it in the original Klingon. So great. And the, and again, Chancellor, uh, you know, uh, General Chang, his delivery of Shakespeare sounds a lot better in Klingon. Ah, ah. Uh, I wonder how many people discovered Shakespeare because of General Chang's delivery during the big battle scene at the end of this movie. Well, and right now he says to be or not to be in Klingon. And here's what happened with this. That's not the original lines in Klingon. They gave him some other lines and he and Christopher Plummer did not like the way it sounded. And he said, make up some other sounds. But what he didn't understand is that Klingon's a language. You can't mm-hmm. just make up sounds. And so they had to go back to their <laughs> Klingon dictionary and look for other words that could mean this. And so what he's actually saying is to continue or not continue. In oh, is that right? Yeah. Mark Okrand what... is the creator of the Klingon language. It's an actual language yep. with an alphabet and all of it. What I've always appreciated about Star Trek is that it has always leaned into Shakespeare. You have some episodes that were named after titles from Shakespeare, like by any other name, obviously all our yesterdays. And one of my all-time favorite episodes, a very underrated episode called The Conscience of the King, which that episode in itself is Shakespeare in space. Mm-hmm. And then in Star Trek Four, McCoy says, uh, angels and ministers of grace defend us which also comes from Hamlet Act 1, Scene 4, because it's when Hamlet sees sees the ghost. Yeah. Um, I just love that, you know, what you were saying, John, mm-hmm. about how 
this movie worked so well because there was so much to it, so many topical elements to it. It was an allegory for so many things. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, just like some of the very best moments of Star Trek, uh, Undiscovered Country leans into Shakespeare by having Chang reference Shakespeare, quote Shakespeare. Yeah. That is another element that 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 just elevates this movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at first, this dinner seems like it's, you know, people are trying. Scotty says, perhaps we're looking at some of that future here. And then Chang says, Tell me, Captain Kirk, would you be willing to give up Starfleet? <laughs> and there's a reaction, and there's a look, and Kirk is about to answer when Spock answers for him. Oh, attention, attention. Yeah, this moment. This moment. (laughs) It's so interesting seeing conflict between these two guys. Yeah, but it's great. It's great. We no, I love it. it. I think it's great. Yeah. Um, and and Kirk then says, "Far be it for me to dispute my first officer." But Starfleet has always been in the fore. Captain, there's no need to mince words. In space, all warriors are cold warriors. If case you didn't get the metaphor, (laughs) this is it. Yeah. And, and it's great here to uh, Steve because this is furthering the division here a little bit between Kirk and Spock, but also Chang is such a per- this is his this is perfect for him. He is on Kirk's ship. Kirk is forced to be more courteous, more respectful. So Chang can play at the edges, taking the shots, goading yeah. him. He is perfect. He is the dominant in this exchange. Because it's uh, it's worked out that way with the uh, uh, factors around him. Uh, if Kirk had been invited to Chang's dinner, maybe Kirk would be the one slowly making little jabs, knowing that Chang has to be on his better behavior as the captain of the ship. So it's an interesting play. But it's also if you're the if you're the kingfish uh, of something, there's always going to be someone who wants to take you on, right? The Gunfighter, the great Gregory Peck movie, is all about. I heard about the gunfighter. I want to be the person that takes down the gunfighter. I want to be the person that takes down Captain Kirk. All the Klingons have spoken about Kirk for decades. And it is, and Chang now gets his shot to take it, to maybe take Kirk out and kind of, you know, bring back the carcass of Kirk to his people. So I love it. At at that moment, with all the the jabs that Chang is, is doing, and he says, we need breeding room. Yeah, Herc with a great comeback. Oh. Earth, Hitler, 1938. <laughs> Chang just gives him a look with that one eye and says, I beg your pardon. <laughs> and like, it's this really Ooh. uncomfortable silence. <laughs> this really, these guys are not getting along. And no. then, you know, Chancellor Gorkin says, yeah. I see we have a long way to go. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think is great and shows his diplomatic skills. You know what I mean? I I think Gorkin is a great, great character. Uh, It's time to say goodbye to the Klingons. Our crew is obviously a little worse for wear or a little worse for a Romulan ale. Mm. Um, And Gorkin goes up to Kirk and says, you don't trust me, do you? I don't blame you. Yeah, I don't blame you. If there is to be a brave new world, our generation is going to have the hardest time living in it. You're right. He is a great character. It's uh, short but sweet. And then Chang walks up to Kirk, gets in his face. Once again, quoting Shakespeare. Parting is such sweet sorrow. (laughs) From Romeo and Juliet. And then... Have we not heard the chimes at midnight? 
from Henry the Fourth, Part Two. Yeah. Uh, Ball steps line. Yeah. He is just, you know, <laughs> on it. And Kirk just kind of shakes his head. They beam off, and they take it all. Take a deep breath, <laughs> like, uh, like, like. Thank God that's over. I I love Kirk saying, "If anyone else can let me know how else I can mess up tonight, let me know. I'll be in my quarters." They all understand it went terribly. They all get it, uh, and it's such a funny moment. But I will say one last thing: David Warner's line is so powerful, and I, I come back to it when I watch the movie all the time because this is a universal line for every older generation. Whenever things change, it is the older generation that is always complaining and bitching about it. And that's just the way it goes. And it's been that through time. So him saying it applies to any situation. It applies to people now. You know, I see all the old people crying, what are influencers? What's this? And that's just the young thing. It's the new thing. You're not part of it. Move on. You know, this is the way it goes constantly because your parents said, what the hell is this? Synth- what's this a punk rock what's this you know it's the way it goes constantly and i love that that they have that moment between kirk and uh, and uh, gorkin I, I agree and i think i mean i think change is hard and i actually think mm. for most of the big things people don't change that much and really the generation has to die off yeah you know yeah. that's how that's how real changes the younger generation is like okay i'm cool with this right. and we see that all the time throughout our history but by the way one more moment uhura saying did you see the way they ate yeah yeah it just yeah. see these are the things where it's like look you've been meeting alien species your whole life mm-hmm. you wouldn't that character wouldn't say that line i don't believe it you know okay. that's my opinion okay. kirk is back in his quarters looking at his picture of david talking about how they sort of messed up says note to galley romulan ale no longer to be served at diplomatic functions (laughs) and just as this poor kind of had too much to drink guy is ready to go to bed spock calls him and calls him up to the bridge and just that's just the expression on kirk you know he lays down and then spock calls him you can see he's just like oh (laughs) (laughs) like right he's like spock for the love of god you leave me alone and then then i like how how when when kirk takes the turbo lift up to the bridge you know when he when he's in the turbo lift he's like slumped down and hunched over but when the turbo lift door opens he straightens himself out you know stands upright and uh you know spock's uh telling him you know i find this curious spock i'm really tired we are reading an enormous amount of neutron radiation in the moment he says that there's neutron radiation that we're sensing, Kirk immediately becomes Kirk again. Mm, like, yes, that's you know right. what I mean? Like he, mm. that tiredness, that all goes away because something's mm-hmm. going on. Yeah, you can and, see that he composes himself yep. when Spock says that. And in the next yeah. moment, we see a photon torpedo sh- shoot from, from the Enterprise, it looks like, and hit the Klingon ship. <laughs> Which tilts. And now it's the whole bridge goes into action, going, what what happened? We have fired on the Chancellor's ship. And on the Klingon ship, they are losing gravity. Mm-hmm. It tilts. This, by the way, these sets are on gimbals. And so that, that's where the tilt is coming thing. Things are floating up. Blasters are floating. And they say, we have been betrayed. Scotty says, according to our inventory, we're fully loaded. We could not have fired a torpedo. And now on the Klingon ship... These guys, two guys in suits show up with gravity boots, magnetic boots, so they can walk. I think this is the coolest action sequence possibly in all the original series movies. Mm -hmm. I think it's just so 
beautifully done this sequence. I I think it's beautifully done, but go back and watch the the attack on the Enterprise from the Reliant in Star Trek Two. You're right. That's fantastic. That is a fantastic with the whole thing with the ratios. Their shields are going up. Fire, you know. uh, That is a beautifully directed scene. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But so is this one. Um, And for for 1991 to have this kind of visual effects and and weightlessness and everything, and and to see the the two people in spacesuits, you know, Federation spacesuits firing on the Klingons and the, they're, they're cutting off limbs and the blood is, the, the sort of purple violet blood is, is floating in the zero G. It is definitely a very, very well done scene. No question about it. Mm-hmm. And basically these two guys, they march through the Klingon ship and just wipe people out. Mm-hmm. And I love the way the, the, you know, we're at the beginning of CG. I think the floating CG blood is really cool. Um, by the reason, the reason it's, it's kind of violet is because if it had been red, they would have gotten an R rating. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. Um, That's good trivia. <laughs> one of the ones, one of the effects when a guy gets hit and he flies backwards, where well, the way that's done is that it's actually on the tallest set on the Paramount lot. And they've built the corridor vertically with the camera on the ground looking straight up and the Klingon being suspended by a wire above the camera. So that's why he looks like he's floating. He's actually being suspended from behind. And when he gets shot, they pull him straight up away from the camera. That's how that effect is done. And it, it works just perfectly. And they come into the where the chancellor is and they shoot uh, one of the people with him. And then they shoot Chancellor Gorkin. And he's tumbling end over end uh, yeah. when he gets shot. It's a really, it's a really dramatic uh, effect, you know, this is pretty violent. It's for, really violent for by, Star by Star Trek standards. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I thought I remember when I saw Star Trek two for the first time and, you know, the scene where the SETI eel goes into yeah. the mm-hmm. ears of Chekhov and Captain Terrell. <sighs> I remember, I remember I was 13 years old thinking, Whoa, that was really, <laughs> really disturbing. And, and, you know, by the time I saw Star Trek six in theaters, it was, I was 22 and I still thought like, I mean, I, I, but I felt that Star Trek Six felt dark in, in, in a whole lot of other ways as well. I mean, it's mm-hmm. definitely a dark, a dark and violent movie, for better or worse. It's a political assassination. Mm-hmm. It's it's, yeah. insane. it's insane. It's you know, the seventy movies, a seventies movie breaking out. Yeah, Star Trek. Yeah. yeah, well, in particular, that's a great point because, in particular, how compromised our characters are. Mm-hmm. Like these are really gray areas our characters and are operating in. It totally is seventies ish in that sense. Yeah, and at the end of the sequence, our bad guys return to the transporter, and a little drop of that violet Klingon blood ends up on one of the boots before they beam out, and then gravity is restored. And watching not just the bodies fall down, but the blood fall down and splatter. Mm-hmm. It is it is something unlike anything we've ever seen in Star Trek. And then Chang calls Kirk. And I love that the shot is sort of above him, looking down. Have you not a shred of decency in you, Kirk? We come in peace, and you blatantly defile that peace. For that, I shall blow you out of the stars. Such a great, great fucking Great moment, yep, for sure. (laughs) 
and I'll blow you out of the stars. Yeah. And Kirk <laughs> is confused. And the and the Klingon ship is coming in. It's ready to fire on the Enterprise. And Chekhov says, Shields up, Captain. No reply. Repeats it. Shields up, Captain. And Kirk says, signal our surrender. Captain? We surrender. This is a great moment. I agree. Because the music's been building to this moment. And then he goes, signal our surrender. And he goes, Mm-hmm. Yeah, and totally. everyone just looks around like, what? Captain Kirk surrendering? This doesn't happen. And Uhura's even shocked so much that she blurts it out. The communications officer blurts it out. And <laughs> Kirk is like, I said, I know. It's, so it's just a, such an odd situation. But once again, Kirk is in this position where he is the captain. It says they fired. He has to take the responsibility of the situation. So I thought it was a fascinating moment for sure. I think it's 100% the right choice. I think it is awesome. I think mm-hmm. it's a great, yeah. Not, no, I'm not saying just the filmmaking choice. I'm saying Captain Kirk does the absolute right thing. If yes. he had raised his shields, then we ha- we're just at war. Peace is never going to happen. The only right, way right. to save the, the peace. The, the only way to, to uh, sort of salvage at least the intent, which was that we did nothing to do with this, mm-hmm. is to not put his shields up and surrender right away. Any show of force at that point would have certainly made it uh, more difficult for them in a court of law. Yeah. But even in a court of law, a Klingon court of law, they're still not going to – well, we'll see what happens with that scene. <laughs> I love this moment with Spock because Kirk says, I'm going over there. And Spock says, I'm responsible for involving you in this. I will go. No, I'll go. You'll be responsible for getting me out of this. <laughs> um, and we see the doctor's going to. And then there's this moment which is so preying on – your Star Trek geekiness, because Kirk Spock says, perhaps you're right. And it looks like he's about to give him a nerve pinch. And of course, that's the end of Wrath of Khan, is that he says to Scotty, perhaps you're right, and then knocks him out so he can go into the the chamber where he, you know, dies from radiation poisoning. Right. And this moment's almost so you're like, oh my God, was he about to nerve pinch him? But in fact, no, he did something completely different. Well, I thought... That this moment, the first time I saw it, I thought he was just like, you know, sort of patting him on the back, like, okay, yeah, you're right. Uh, but no, he was putting something on him mm-hmm. in case they get separated and they can keep track of him. And as soon as Spock makes that move, when, you know, Kirk has his back to the camera, you see a Velcro thing on his top uh, left shoulder. Mm. So that's that's the device that Spock puts on him. So they could keep track of him and rescue him if they need to. Have you lost your mind? I give you my word, I don't understand what has happened. We're here to help. And they go into the room where the chancellor's been shot, and the chancellor is still alive, and McCoy asks if they have a surgeon. We were until this disgrace. Well, then for God's sakes, man, let me help. They get him on a table, they try to stabilize him, but he doesn't know Klingon anatomy. His heart stops, and McCoy's on top of him. Come on, Derek. Come on! He comes back to life just for a moment, grabs Kirk, and the last words the Chancellor says is, Don't let it end this way, Captain. And then his hand falls. And with that, they're arrested, and everyone on the bridge, you know, Horace lets lets everyone know that they've been arrested, and there is just silence. Yeah. Like, oh boy. We just (laughs) we just had dinner with these guys. And the, and the whole movie has shifted, you know, mm-hmm. 
it, it, it's just a completely different movie. And I think at that moment, it is a good time to end part one of our exploration of Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Um, as always, we want to hear what you think. Visit our Facebook page. Do a search for The Cinephiles. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, on Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, even on Audible. Please leave your reviews on iTunes. We They really, really help, and we really appreciate every single one. Um, you can support the show by going to patreon.com slash the cinephiles. You can buy Star Trek six or any other movie we've ever reviewed or stream it through Amazon prime on cinephiles.net. That's cine-files.net. You can follow the cinephiles at cine underscore files on Twitter, the cinephiles podcast on Instagram. You can follow me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. John, how about you? You can always follow me at the Roka says on Twitter and on Instagram and also come on over to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca says to see all the stuff we're doing there as well. Scott, as always, it's a pleasure to have you on the Cinephiles. If people wanted to reach you, how would they do it? You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at MovieMance, and you can check out my YouTube channel, which is Scott Mance. Please subscribe and, when you're there. <laughs> yes. And you also should subscribe to Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. It is coming out. It might already be out as we put this out, or if not, it's very soon. Scott and I are exploring every single episode of the original series in production order. And I think that is it for this week. Next time on The Cinephiles, we will try to discover the undiscovered country with the conclusion of our exploration of Star Trek VI. Star Trek VI.